Today, as we continue looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we are looking at at a break of sorts in the middle of the the letter to the Ephesians. The first three chapters that we've been looking at are kind of a theological foundation being laid by Paul about who God is in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, the grace that he gives us and by which we are saved in in his goodness. And we have that opportunity in the first three chapters to look through and to build that foundational theology. And he begins chapter four now with the word therefore. That is a hinge word because it says we've had all of this that we have built up now therefore and the rest of the letter becomes what we call the ethical exhortation of the letter to the Ephesians. Since we believe these things, here is how we shall now live in light of those things. It's a nice piece of self-examination sometimes to say, what would people say I believe by the way that I live, right? If you take it backwards and look at our own lives, what would people say were were my foundational uh, tenets of life? based on the things that I do every day and say every day in the world around me of real flesh and blood. But Paul begins here in the second half, building on what's already been put there, he begins the second half with, therefore, lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It was a legit question for Paul and for this early church in these days, how are Jews and Greeks gonna get along? How are they gonna call each other brothers and sisters when they come from such disparate backgrounds around the Mediterranean world? It's not that different a question than we have today in many ways, is it? How are we going to call one another brothers and sisters? How is it that folks are going to get along? Asian folks, black folks, white folks. How are old folks and young folks supposed to get along? How are rich folks and poor folks supposed to occupy the same family of God? How does this work in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2021, much less in Ephesus in the first century? Paul answers that question with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That unity must be a priority for us, a passion for us. Mark Roberts in his blog, The High Calling, reflects on the wording here in Ephesians. He says this verb translated make every effort is spudazo in Greek. Its most literal translation is to be zealous. So be zealous for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Thus, he says, we make every effort to preserve Christian unity, not only because it is right for us to do so, but also because we are passionate about unity. As people in touch with the heart of God, we desire church unity. We yearn for it. Thus, we do everything in our power to preserve the unity of Christ's church. Jesus is always about the unity of his church for the family of God to be together. Remember his last prayer before he went to the cross in John. What was it all about? The heart of his prayer was that they may be one 
as you and I are one, Father. Jesus was zealous for the unity of the family of God. And so we are as well when we are right. To use the language of Ephesians from chapter 2 where Paul was writing earlier, Jesus has already broken down the walls of division. He has brought those who were far off to, bring, to come near. He did not do that so that we could rebuild the walls that he had broken down. He did not do that so that we could cast out those whom he had brought near. But how do we keep the unity of Christ? Again to those words, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. In a disposable society that we live in, where relationships and everything else can be discarded like a fast food wrapper, we are called to be zealous for the unity of being together in Christ. These are the tools as gifts of grace that God gives us to build up the unity of the body. Humility is a chief Christian virtue, no doubt about that. Humility before God is the only place where we begin in faith. It's not a deal where we come to God to make a barter, to make a bargain with God, right? I'll do this if you do that. No, that's not how a relationship with God Almighty works. God sets the standard by which we come. God is who God is and not who always we think God should be. So we must humbly come to God and that's where faith begins. But humility toward our fellow human beings, that gets a little trickier sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes they don't deserve for us to be humble with them, do they? Sometimes we don't deserve for others to be humble or gentle or patient with us. It gets a little sticky sometimes in the real world. But humility is the only way to begin not only our relationship with God, but to really embrace the unity of the body. To say that your best interest is my best interest. To say that I don't have to get what I want all the time. I don't have to be happy or fulfilled or seek those things out because I'm zealous for what? The unity of the body. I'm zealous for your good to be done. And again, in our society today, isn't that a blessing of grace of God? To become a part of a community where genuinely we live this life together for the sake of others, as our vision statement says. We are called to that. He invites us. Grace is an invitation from God to come and live into the reality of what Jesus has already done. It invites us to live into his work. Christ has broken down the walls of division and brought those who were far to the near place. And he invites us, in spite of what the world looks like around us, to live in that reality as opposed to what it might look like sometimes in this world. Now this is more than just kind of the chief virtue of our time, which is tolerance, right? Tolerance. Everybody can do what they want, say what they want, with whomever they want, as long as nobody gets hurt. 
And the idea for some people of church unity is that the church just becomes the great affirmer of what everyone wants to do because they're free to do so. And the church is the great affirmer because many people see God as the great affirmer. Whatever you feel, whatever you think, God says, great job, no matter what it is. We do practice this virtue of tolerance as Christians. We practice it in the public square. We are not persecuting or demeaning people for their opinions or their beliefs or their behavior. But the issue that goes deeper is inside the church, inside the family of God. We must practice a virtue greater than tolerance, mustn't we? Tolerance is kind of entry-level stuff. We're called to practice love. The unity of God's spirit has substance. It means something to say that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Our theology and our practice matter to God and they matter to one another within the body. It means something to be part of a church, a covenant member thereof. Christ came and died and rose again for a reason. He came to give us unity within the body and it is in him that we find our unity. Now here we have to make clear that there's a difference between unity and conformity. We do not have to agree on absolutely everything in faith and life. And that's good news. Amen? It's good. It's good news. It'd be really lonely here on Sunday morning if the only people who came were people who agreed with me about everything in faith and life. I don't even have that in my house. Carolyn really likes Taylor Swift. I believe Taylor Swift is God's righteous judgment on us because of our wickedness as a nation. We don't have to agree about everything. Styles. But are, there are things that are essential to being in the family of God. It is critical to be able to understand and to say and to articulate essential beliefs and practices for the body of Christ. After all, if there are no essential beliefs and practices within the body of Christ, there is no truth or trust within the body. Paul fleshes out what the substance of that unity in the spirit looks like in the series of ones that follow here in Ephesians chapter 4. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, just as you were called to one hope in your calling. There is one body of Christ because there's only one spirit who unites us in Christ. There is one hope in our calling and that is indeed that we are united in God with Christ for this life and the one that is to come. That's the deal. One thing that I like most about being Presbyterian is that we do affirm that there is one body of Christ and we are just one small part of it, right? The Presbyterian church is not the true church. We are part of the true church, which embraces all of those who are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you come to be a covenant partner in this church, we don't say to you, well, you really need to be baptized here. I know you were baptized before, but that was in a Methodist church. When we come to the sacrament of the Lord's table, 
we say quite plainly, this is not a Westminster table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It is the Lord's table. And all those who confess him and have been baptized into his church are welcome at his table, at his invitation. As we were looking at, at coming back with the early service that's based around the, the Book of Common Prayer, I was doing some research and some homework on this because it's not kind of my first language of worship, right? And I was looking at different Anglican liturgies from around our country and around the world even to see what pieces and parts are, are common to each one and what parts are brought in as individually part of different expressions of the liturgy. And what I found in, in one of these in particular is one that we have included in uh, the early service liturgy as we come to the Lord's table. And I found it in a Kenyan Anglican liturgy. When we come to the table, we, we put this in because it came directly from that service. We proclaim we are brothers and sisters through his blood. We have died together. We will rise together. We will live together. And the commentary that went along with that liturgy was that in Kenya, you know, there are many different tribes that Christians come from. Tribes that may have been at odds in the past, may have been at war at different times. And for them to be able to say, we are brothers and sisters by his blood, by Christ's blood, says that no matter what tribe we started out in or came out from, there is one tribe at this table. And it is the tribe of Jesus Christ, the one who has given himself for us. It's a beautiful expression of the unity in the body of Christ that is deeper than any tribal identity that we bring to this place. When they have come to Christ, when we have come to Christ, and we approach his table, we confess one tribe to which all God's children belong. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The substance of the unity of the Spirit is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as Paul has already written, is the only head of the church. Jesus Christ is our Lord and our faith. You might know that some of the earliest Christians, the earliest Christian creed was simply, Jesus is Lord, sovereign, as we were saying, singing this morning. Jesus is Lord. Now we've added to that with confessions and creeds and catechisms ever since that are part of our heritage from the apostles in Nicene Creed to the Westminster Confession and Barman Declaration even. But they're all commentary on that one statement of faith that Jesus is Lord. When you come into a new presbytery in the Presbyterian church as a pastor or a professor, as an ordained person, you're examined on the floor of presbytery and you have to write a, like a page of um, statement of faith, right? And in regular times, you go before the whole gathering of the presbytery and they ask questions about this statement of faith that you have given. One of my great professors at Princeton Seminary was Ulrich Mauser, who had grown up in Nazi Germany. He had paid a dear price in his family during those days. But as a theology professor, he was transferring from Pittsburgh Seminary to Princeton Seminary, and he had to transfer presbyteries at that point as well. For Dr. Mauser's confession of faith, 
Instead of writing an original page, he simply printed the Apostles' Creed. And as pastors are wont to do during that meeting, someone stood up and said, Dr. Mauser, we were hoping for something a little more personal in your statement of faith. And as only a man who had been through what he had been through could say, Dr. Mauser simply replied, it doesn't get any more personal than that. The creeds which shape us and bind us together as the body of Christ. We have a unity, not just with the visible body of Christ here today with the family of God that is walking this earth, but through the generations that have gone before us and the ones who will come after us. There is a unity with that because there is a continuity of faith through the creeds and through the Holy Spirit's work. The confessions that we use in our own service are corporate, yes, but they are also deeply personal for each of us. We read that each of us in chapter 4 of Ephesians was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Do you feel like you have that much? Each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. How much was Christ's gift? It's immeasurable. The grace, therefore, that he has poured out on us is immeasurable. It's overflowing. How is it being expressed in our lives that we've received this grace according to the measure of Christ's fullness? Paul lists some of the gifts here. He says some are prophets and some are preachers and some are teachers and some are apostles and some are evangelists. We each have gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. Not the same graces do each of us have, right? There is diversity in the graces that he has given us with the gift of Christ. But each of us has one and we have this diversity of graces and gifts for the singular purpose, he says, of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, i.e. building up the body of Christ. In an age of celebrity preachers and mega churches all over the internet and the world, we have seen time and again failures of grace because people lose sight of why they have the gifts of grace. It's not about us. The antidote is what he told us earlier. Humility, patience, gentleness. Those are the gifts of grace in our lives to remind us over and again that we are here with gifts of grace, not for the building up of ourselves, but for building up the body of Christ. Not everybody's a preacher. Not everybody's a teacher. Not everybody's a gifted musician to be up front. But friends, what grace have you been given in the measure of Christ's gift? How are you building up the body of Christ in your own way, with your own gifts of grace that Christ has given to you. It is grace to live in a community, again, that truly lives life together for the sake of others. That's seeking your good, seeking their good before my own. How can we use the grace that we have been given according to the measure of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. It's not a graduate level course in the faith. 
to say, how can I serve? It is absolutely an integral part of anyone who is part of the family of God that we find a ministry to build up the body of Christ. It's part of it. And so whether it's working in the nursery or volunteering with our middle school students, whether it's cleaning up after second Sunday lunch, maybe it's working in the AV booth in the back. What is the grace that you have been given to build up this body of Christ, particularly in this place? I encourage you to think about that, to discover the gift that God has given you for building up the body of Christ, hands and feet, flesh and blood, time and attention, to be part of this family of God, to be zealous for the unity and the service herein because God is. Let us pray.